Well, I hope you had a fruitful time looking at 2 Samuel 8 in your growth groups this week. If you're not in a growth group, um, come chat to me or someone else about joining one. Um, But tonight we're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 9. So open that up in your Bibles. We're going to read all of it. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machiah, son of Amiel in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machiah, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth's grandson, and Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord, the king, commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. I've got no idea. Folks, what is God really like? What is God really like? If we were to head out of here as a big group and go and just meet people on the streets, we'd get all sorts of different reactions. Some people would say a slightly snarky, disinterested being. Others, one who I pray to, only rarely, but who rarely answers my prayers and doesn't help me very much at all, actually. Others might say, isn't he the bloke who you go up to heaven and he's going to weigh up, did I do enough good things or more bad things and I'll get to either go to heaven or to that other place? Uh, What is God really like? Uh, Other people might say, uh, in answer to the question, what is God really like? He's just confused. I mean, have you noticed how many religions there are out there? And if there's one God over all these religions, why is he sort of putting forth so many different ideas and does he just need a psychologist? Is that what needs to happen? 
And then other people would say, in answer to the question, what is God really like? He's non-existent. He's the stuff of superstitions and myths. Now I'm sure there are a million other responses on top of those ones that we could find out there. And I'm looking forward to next June when the census data comes out and we can have a look at just you know, what Australians are thinking about church and religion and God and all those sorts of things. It would be a really good question to think about. But this evening, I'm more interested in something else. I'm actually more interested this evening in your answer to the question. Well, who do you picture God as? What do you think God is really like? What's going in your heart? What's going on in your mind? How do you answer the question? What is God really like? And I'm asking this question this evening because I do worry about this. I worry that some will give an answer that is more influenced by movies and culture than scripture and truth. And I worry that some will give an answer that is more influenced by a misunderstanding of the gospel than the actual gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his death and resurrection. And more than that, I worry that some of us live in fear without any real assurance of salvation. You might be sitting there tonight thinking to yourself, I hope I get into whatever heaven is. And then I also worry that some just live in this aloof arrogance because you feel like you've got God figured out. And so you don't need to worry. So tonight we pause. We look into 2 Samuel 9 and we see what God reveals of himself here. So we can answer the question, what is God really like? And live in accordance with that reality. So 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, I have it open in the Bible in front of you, take some notes, it's on the screen. Let's go in verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now on the face of it, David's question there in verse 1 looks like exactly the sort of thing you'd expect God's king to say, especially a king who, as we saw last week, has acknowledged the sovereignty of the Lord. But there is a dual context we must pay attention to here to understand just how this story plays out. And the first context is this, is that it was absolutely normal in the days of David for every new king to purge their enemies completely. That the household of any previous king would be entirely liquidated until there was no one and nothing left. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it, and everybody in the ancient Near East practiced it. And Saul had been David's enemy. Indeed, for the last sort of 10 years of Saul's life, he spent his whole mission, his whole life, trying to kill David off. And then when Saul had been killed, the people from the household of Saul raised up another king to challenge David for the kingship, Ishbosheth, in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And so when David asked, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? This is the same David who gets victory wherever he goes. This is the same David that in chapter 8 just goes around and destroys and destroys. This is the same David who, if he came after you and you're in the household of Saul, 
your spine would tingle. Because you know what kings do to their enemies. However, when we look closely at the words of verse 1, we find David in what is an abnormal, unkingly pursuit. He is genuinely looking for someone from his enemy's household, but he genuinely wants to show kindness. Now that word there, kindness, opens up the idea of doing things to meet an extreme need. It's, it's sort of actions that are uncharacteristically enormous. It's behaving in a way towards others that is outside the pattern, the normal run of care and attention to people. It's kindness that is motivated out of personal affection and out of the pure goodness from within someone's heart that you would do extraordinary things for someone else. And not only that, we see that he wants to show kindness for Jonathan's sake there in verse 1. And so in this very moment, we become insiders in the story. We actually get an insight into what's going on inside David's head as he makes this request. Because we remember 1 Samuel chapter 20. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, when Jonathan and David were talking together about the future, Jonathan said to David uh, from verse 14, Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So while we look into verse 1, we see David fulfilling a promise to Jonathan. We see him pursuing this extraordinary kindness and care. What we see from 1 Samuel 20 is a God-shaped kindness and care. And it will be towards one who is rightly his enemy. But that's not what the enemy hears. And so David summons Ziba, a servant of Saul's household, and he asks Ziba the same question in verse 3. He says to him, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Now this time, David's words embody the reality that he's wanting to show a God-shaped kindness, that he continues this search for his enemy. David's plan is to be like God as he deals with his enemy. But Ziba... Well, he's standing there fearing the purge. And he's got a plan to limit the damage that David will do to the household of Saul. And so he answers in the second half of verse 3. He says, there is still a son of Jonathan. And he's lame in both feet. Now, how do we know that Ziba's plan is to limit the damage that David could cause to the household of Saul? Well, first of all, he offers up the very weakest person in the whole household of Saul. It's sort of like, well, we know we're your enemies, but we'll give you a guy who can't even walk. And so, you know, surely that, 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 that he will not do anything to hurt you and don't hurt us either. Now, secondly, he gives the impression that, well, this man is the last one of Saul's relatives, but we're going to find out later he's not the last one of Saul's relatives. In fact, Ziba's offered up the most lamest of ducks and just left everyone else hiding round the corner so no one can actually see them. Thirdly, he savvily leverages David's friendship with Jonathan as if to encourage compassion uh, towards the household of Saul. And there's more. We, we're soon going to discover that this lame man is so much outside the household of Saul 
Saul, but he's actually off living somewhere else, not even with the household of Saul, down in a place called Lodabar, and not even Zeba and his entourage of 35 people can be worried about caring for him. And after all of that, have you noticed his name in verse 3? Well, he's not even named. Because the zebras have so little value. And so he's offered to the king to test the king. What are you going to do with us? Here's an offering. If you're even going to kill him, then we'll know our place. And the rest of us will have to run. But David intends no harm to this man. And David will call him by name and give him dignity and honour. And so verse 6, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. And David said, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. And straight away we know that this man, an enemy of David, one who is in great fear, will be the recipient of God-shaped kindness. But he knows nothing of the character of David. He, he just knows the story of his ancestors. And so he is rightly afraid. And there he is, bowed down, literally face down, paying homage to the king with no claim for his life from one who should regard him as an enemy. And you can imagine him sitting there, probably having been placed by there by people, because he's lame in both feet. You can imagine him being placed there, and he's just looking at David's shoes, thinking, is this my end? Is this it for me? And then David calls him by his name. Mephibosheth. You know, on the two occasions that I did something wrong as a child, my father called me by name. And uh, especially when I was 31, it wasn't a pleasant moment. Uh, it's never a pleasant moment when your mum or your dad or grandma or grandpa calls out your name with that sort of high-pitched screaming sound and you realise, uh-oh, they've found out. By contrast, I hear in David's voice here, genuine compassion and a beautiful love and an overwhelming kindness. And indeed, in verse 7, he says to Mephibosheth, Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I'll restore, you to, restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And as if to just... Let the shockwaves roll out. We read in verse 8 the way that Mephibosheth responds to this astounding promise. He says, What is your servant that you should even notice a dead dog like me? What Mephibosheth doesn't understand is that the kindness that David is showing is not merited. The kindness that David is showing is not won. The kindness that David is showing is not earned. It's not based on who Mephibosheth is. It's not based on his worth to David. It's not based on Mephibosheth at all. But rather, Mephibosheth receives kindness because that's what God's king is like. Imperfect though David is, he assures Mephibosheth that his kindness is no flash in the pan, 
but that he will always show kindness to him. Now look at me from verse 9, how the chapter finishes. Uh, David says, The king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for and Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Verse 11, your servant, Ziba says, will do whatever the Lord, my king, commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of David's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And so the blessing that has come through David actually starts to become generational as this is passed on to the next, his young son, Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. What you see there is God-shaped loving kindness. So what is God really like? He's like David is towards Mephibosheth. And what we see in David here, we're able to learn of God. And it's this, that his heart is more open to you than you might imagine. That God's hands are outstretched and ready to, to take you in. That his love is unfettered and unfathomable, even for one who would be an enemy. That God's love stretches even that far. And yet many who call themselves believers, many who would darken the doors of a church, Perhaps some or many of you here tonight don't quite believe this. Often we're more like the Mephibosheth of verse 6 and we're afraid. And do, you, do you ever say to yourself as you think about your relationship with God and God's attitude towards you, do you ever think or say to yourself, oh, I'm too sinful for God? Or I'm too weak for God? Well, I'm not like those other good Christians on the other side of the church. I have so little knowledge of God. I could never be of use to God. I will never be good enough. I will never be enough for God. Perhaps you've got a secret. Something buried down deep in your soul. And you're clinging to that thing. And you're thinking to yourself, because of that thing, I could never be friends with God. I could never be at his table. Because of that thing, I'm never going to be worthy. Friends, if, 
if this is you and you live afraid of God, uncertain of your future, unsure that you could be forgiven, even if in some small way you hear these voices, then let me share with you a beautiful little illustration from Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland that I've modified for our context. You know when you get into a car on a really hot summer's day and the air is scorching and it's scorching every part of your skin and you sit in the chair and the chair is scorching and it's scorching your backside and you put your hands on the steering wheel and the steering wheel is scorching and it's scorching your hands and you think to yourself, ah, the air conditioning and so you turn on the air conditioning, you turn it all the way down to low and the fan all the way up to high. I want you to imagine that moment except that you've got all the vents closed. And the air conditioning is blaring, but every vent is on zero. And the air is there, but you just won't let it in. And the problem is not the air. The air is just behind the little plastic flap. The problem is your readiness to receive it. Opening the vent will flood the car with cool. And that cool air is right there just needs to be accessed. Friends, that's the mercy of God toward you. It's there. It just needs to be accessed. This is the love of God towards you. It's there. It just needs to be accessed. This is the grace of God toward you. It's there just needs to be accessed. And here's the beautiful thing, that this mercy, this grace, this love, this kindness of God actually came here for you. In Titus chapter 3, Paul says, for when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared... Now, that's, that's an incredible little start to a sentence there because essentially Paul is describing Jesus as the kindness and love of God. There he is, the kindness and love of God, our Saviour. When all of that appeared, well, that's Jesus. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Do you see that? It's nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with him. And David showed this kindness to just one person, Mephibosheth. But when Jesus came, Jesus showed this kindness to everyone. He came for you. And he simply wants you to come to him, to find forgiveness in him. That's what it is to open the vents, is to come to Christ, to bring yourself before him, to pray to him, to ask him for forgiveness and hope. And you can be certain that it will come because he is lovingly kind. Rest assured, you are as sinful as you think you are. However... God is as lovingly kind as kindness can be and God is as merciful as mercy can be and God is as gracious as grace can possibly be. And those arrogant enough to think that they've done enough need to hear this all the more, that none of this is merited. None of this is won. None of this is earned. None of this is based on who you are and none of this is based on your worth to God. None of this is based on you at all. 
Jesus' attitude towards you flows directly from his heart, despite you. And Paul captures this again beautifully in Romans 5. He says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the dark clouds of my sin do not define me when I'm united with Jesus. His punishment at the cross became my punishment. So I no longer look forward in fear, but look back to the cross with rejoicing at the salvation that has been won. I no longer allow a fitful panic to arrive in my heart and and build up because I don't need to do more. I don't need to achieve more. I don't need to be more because the heart of Christ that is toward me has calmed me into joy and I can bring my up and down faith and I can bring my up and down godliness and it meets the kindness of Jesus and finds his settled heart that does not come and go like the sun in November. God's love for you does not come and go. He is towards you in Christ. And maybe you've made one big stupid decision and it's weighing you down like an anchor. Maybe you've made 10,000 little decisions that were not of God and they're weighing you down like an anchor. Maybe you have squandered his kindness and mercy, but do you know what God does to people who have squandered his mercy and grace and kindness? He, he pulls out more mercy. Because the one thing in the Bible that it says God is rich in is mercy. And so God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but he is open-handed. He is not frugal, but lavish. He is not poor, but rich. And the things that, about you that make you cringe are the very things that make him come to you and hug you hardest and whisper to you, you're forgiven, you're free, you're welcome. His kindness is not calculating and cautious. It is unrestrained. It is flood-like. It is sweeping. It is enormous. Our haunting shame is not a problem for him. Our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to push forward toward us all the more. He wants you at his table. Now let me give you a little insight into me and some of my little fears and oddities. I love weddings. I love going to weddings, I love being invited to weddings, but I I always have this little fear when I turn up at a reception that I'm actually at the reception without being invited. And, And so what you'll see of me when I arrive at a reception is the first thing that I will do is look for the board where all the names are on the board. And I go up to the board and I'm looking, Nigel, 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 and there I find myself, right down the bottom corner, it's okay, table nine. But that's not enough. I'll then 
go to table nine and check that my name is actually on table nine and I'll take my jacket off and I'll put it on my chair and just check that, just check that the name is still correct. It's not sort of Negegwale Fortescue or something else. And just once it's all there, then, then, then I'm calm. Then I know I'm in the right place. Then I'm all okay. Because I, I am meant to be there. And friends, if you come to Jesus and you trust Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you're, you're invited to the wedding banquet of the King. He's welcoming you in and your name will be on that list. And your name will be on that table. And his promise to you is that you will always eat at the king's table because that is what God's like and you will eat into eternity. Did you notice that about Mephibosheth in those verses as we read through 9 to 13? Three times and it all culminates in this in verse 13 and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was lame in both feet. He had nothing to give David but David gave Mephibosheth extraordinary kindness. You have nothing to give Jesus but your sin. And Jesus wants to show you extraordinary kindness. Because you are Mephibosheth. Now, you know, as I was studying this passage, there was a song that just kept running round and round inside my head. And one verse in particular, and it was from this one. And we're going to sing it together right now. I'm going to start. I invite you to join me. Are you ready? Yep. Nothing in my David showed kindness to Mephibosheth and God has shown that very same kindness to you. What is God really like? He's like David. What are we really like? Friends, you are Mephibosheth. Amen. Bring it on. Yeah. Well, now to the important things, the questions. Great. Um, my question for you is, 
Why have you not gone on The Voice yet? I was oh, hitting the so, red button. So many reasons you'd hit the red button. Everyone else would be hitting the off button. It was button. the eject button. But <laughs> that's right. Thank you. I didn't bring my Bible. Anyway, if I need my Bible, I'll go and grab it. You're not going to answer that question. Uh, why have I not gone on the voice? It's a patently obvious person. <laughs> when Nigel did that this morning, I was there going, ooh, I don't know if that's going to fly tonight, but I think it went pretty well. You will not see me do that because you will never hear me sing in a microphone. <laughs> there is reason for that. But Beck asked Challenge a really, accepted. No. Beck <laughs> asked a really good question. Uh, Beck asked this question. Was not the reason that David showed kindness to Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake rather than merely out of kindness? Uh, yeah, but he wouldn't have needed to do that if that wasn't endemic to his character. And I think if you go back and look at the relationship between Jonathan and David... In the first place, David should not have actually even been friends with Jonathan because of his father Saul's relationship. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, so if you go back and look at that relationship between David and Jonathan, I think you see in that relationship the beginnings of this, that it just plays out. Uh, and and the, the language there, I think, is David taking responsibility for that promise but showing us that that is actually part of his very character that flowed from his relationship with um, uh, Jonathan, that flows on to Jonathan's son and Jonathan's grandson, Mika. Mm. Oh, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, Sarah asks, I, I struggle to extend unconditional kindness to those who have wronged me despite Christ's sacrifice for me. How does one get better at that? Yeah. Um, that's really hard, I want to say. And uh, in life... Uh, you, you'll, you will meet people who are really wronged by others uh, and perhaps you are someone who has been really wronged uh, by others. Um, and I think the, um, uh, the first thing to do is to start praying for the person who wronged you and, and praying that God would enable you to have a heart that is uh, disposed towards them uh, and uh, praying that uh, God may do a work not only in, in you, but in them as well. I think it's important to, to just temper that by saying that sometimes uh, people uh, do such grievous things to other human people uh, that the right thing to do is, is actually to stand back from that relationship. I don't think that it is a, a Christian responsibility uh, to um, stay in a relationship or stay in connection with someone where um, there is great grief. For example, I, I don't think that it is appropriate in a marriage where there is domestic violence, domestic abuse, uh, for someone to stay in that household if they're being abused and just suffer in silence under that abuse. Uh, that you might step out uh, is actually an appropriate uh, thing to do. Um, but that it would be right for you to pray that God would temper your heart towards that other person, not so that you might accept what they have done, but so that you may actually have a, a godly heart towards them uh, is the right thing to think about. So I just want to just put that out there in the midst of that. Is I, I don't think that the, us demonstrating God's unconditional kindness means placing yourself in a situation where other people are able to continue to abuse or cause grief towards you in that way. Yeah, it's very, it, 
takes wisdom. Yeah. And, and this is where we... This is like why church is so important, right? This is why we, we love actually gathering because it gives us a chance in the befores and afters to, to turn to a friend and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. To turn to a friend and say, I'm navigating something really difficult. To turn to your growth group and say, will you pray for me as I am trying to work this out? And you have a community of people around you who are going to love you and walk with you in that and, and actually speak wisdom from God's word into that. I think sometimes when we ourselves are the victim of unkindness, uh, we need to actually you know, have others speak into that because we can become so befuddled that we don't know what to do. But, but back to sort of the original, that's sort of all the caveats, back to the original answer to the question. Uh, trust that God will transform your heart in the power of the Spirit as he promises to do. And so pray for that transforming work in your heart, that God would actually enable you to be able to show kindness to this other person who may have grieved you, and that God would do a work in their heart by his Spirit to transform them as well. And he promises to do that. That's the fruit of the Spirit in us. It is, and it can be very difficult. I remember at a previous workplace before I was a minister being extremely bullied by one of the, the, the people in the workplace, and that's an interesting thing to navigate mm. uh, as, you, as you seek to work on that relationship, yeah. and, uh, but also not be continually put down by it. So it's yeah. Yeah, work it out in community with others as you discuss. Yeah. Um, one final question. And it's here. It keeps moving on the slider. Uh, how can we find a balance between conviction of our sin and knowing God's unconditional love for us? Mm. I feel like my sin tends to win. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know that it's a balance. I think you need to let Jesus win. And you need to trust that actually when you lay your sin before him, he doesn't just cover it with a soggy piece of paper that might sort of dissolve or a bit of paper that might blow away such that it would be exposed again. But actually when you lay your sin before the Lord and you repent and you come before him, he, he wipes the slate clean and it's done. That doesn't mean that you can keep loading sin up and sort of go, cool, slate gets cleaned, let's just, you know, it's sort of like someone else is paying my speeding fines, I'll just speed every day of the week and it won't matter. No, you'll find actually that as you lay your sin before the Lord, repent and, and leave it at the foot of the cross and turn your back on it and walk away, that that, that will actually enable you to walk in righteousness and, and, and to, to walk in God, to live a godly life. And, um, and so I, I, would, I would say... Yes, we need to be those who are pursuing godliness and not, uh, not uh, illicitly relying on the forgiveness of God. But we actually need to be those who actually lay our sin before God and walk on with a bit of joy. Do you know the Christian life can actually be quite a joyous experience? It's amazing. If you actually just lay your sin at the cross and go, I am forgiven and I'm going to head out into this week. And I'm going to love Jesus and love people and serve people and do so with great confidence because Jesus loves me and I'm Mephibosheth and here I go. But often we're like, oh, another crap week. I'm a crap person. It's also crap. And we'll just be Christians that have a big sad look on our face. When we should be the people who are glad 
So I'd encourage you to lay your sin at the cross and lay it there and don't pick it up again. Amen. 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 Thank you.